The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. We've been trying to consider the kingdom of heaven together and in that line of thought we'd like to make our way to the parable of the sower and uh, this is found in Matthew chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. You can turn to Mark chapter 4 this morning. We want to focus on that account this morning. Uh, this parable is commonly known as the parable of the sower. A sower went forth to sow which we find out is the word of God. But it's really more appropriately the parable of the soils. The focus is not the sower. The focus is the four different types of ground and the four different types of soil that is being addressed. And what we find here is this is Jesus teaching to us the different types of responses that we can expect to the preaching of God's word and the preaching of the gospel in this world and particularly in the kingdom of heaven. So the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, we'd like to just read verses 1 through 20 to begin this morning to give you a full scope and we want to uh, consider this in depth and go through each of these particular grounds and hopefully learn some very important lessons for us today and as we interact with others as well. So to introduce these thoughts, we'd like to begin in Mark chapter 4 and in verse 1. <clears throat> and he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth. And immediately it sprang up, but because it had no depth of earth, when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundred fold, as it says in the other Gospels. <clears throat> and he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And then when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable, how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth 
the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. And when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the, the word that was sown in their heart. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. But they have no root in themselves, and so they endure for a time. But afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth, for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. These are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. <clears throat> so here we find this parable of the sower, and the most important thing to note of all of these four types of ground is that all of these hearers of the word, all these types of ground, they hear the word, okay? They hear the word. And he said there in verse 9, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. He uses that same language in Revelation 2 and 3 as he's talking to the seven churches of Asia. And there he says, he that hath the ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So, this is not talking about natural ear. All of us have natural ears, right? But not everyone has a spiritual ear to hear the word. So, he that hath the ears to hear, let him hear. These are people that hear the word. So what does that mean? These are children of God that have been born again that hear the word. So we have to approach this parable with that understanding. And I will just say, as we make our way through this, the majority of Christianity... The majority of Christianity today would say that only the good ground are children of God. Only the good ground are going to heaven. And we want to understand that this is not trying to have a dividing line that these are the people who make the cut and these are the people who endure for a little bit of time. It looks like they're on the fast track to heaven, but they get deceived and then they fall away. Well, I guess they lost their eternal life. Well, I guess they proved that they weren't God's elect anyway. Then you get on the thorny ground, and they're bringing forth fruit. They are bringing forth fruit. But then there's some things that choke out their fruitfulness, and then they, they fade away. Well, that just proves that they were never among God's elect anyway, and they're going to go to hell too. Which, by the way, we hope to make our way uh, after this parable of the soils. In Matthew chapter 13, there are multiple other parables. And the one right after this is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the principle of the wheat and the tares is that it is not the servant's responsibility to determine who the wheat and the tares are. You wait until harvest time, and then they will become readily apparent, but you leave them alone until the harvest time because there's some servants that were very zealous and said, you know what, we're concerned about these tares that are in the ground. Let us go and root up these tares. And he said, no, 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 don't do that because you don't have enough knowledge to identify the wheat from the tares, and by you thinking you're rooting out tares, you're going to damage good wheat. <laughs> okay? So that's the exact lesson that Jesus teaches right after this, is it's not your job to be 
goat hunters. <laughs> you know, there's some people that, that, that they want to make it their business to find false professors and tell people they're going to hell. That's not our job. Our job is to preach the gospel. It matters to God's children, and it doesn't matter to anybody else. It's not my job to go find goats. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not trying to find out. Uh, you know, are you a stony ground person and, and with a misunderstanding of this parable and, and you believed and, and you showed some fruit for a little bit of time, but now you're living away from the church and, and away from the flock that just evidences me that, that you're a goat. There's no need for me to find out who the sheep and the goats are. That's the Lord's business, who the wheat and the tares are, all right? But when we approach this, I want you to understand that the majority of Christianity will say that only those who exhibit this good ground receipt of the gospel are the only people that are going to heaven, okay? And that's not true. That's not the teaching of this parable, okay? The purpose of this parable is to set the appropriate expectations that this is the natural disposition of the way that people will receive the preaching of the gospel in the church and in the kingdom, okay? The natural disposition. Now, of these four grounds, <clears throat> it's also very important to note First of all, think about the wayside. I, I believe that it says here um, that these people that are by the wayside, the word was sown in their heart, which means that they were pricked in the heart, okay? That means that it had a residing place in their heart. These were born-again children of God that it touches their heart, but before they understand it, Satan comes in and he deceives them. But I would say that probably primitive Baptist are probably the only people, maybe in all of Christianity, that would look at this description of the wayside person and say that that is a born-again child of God. Why are they a born-again child of God? Because they hear the Word. Because they hear the Word. However, it says in Luke chapter 8, in Luke's account of this parable <clears throat> verse 12 those that are by the wayside are they that hear and then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their heart lest they should believe and be saved okay now for us to understand the parable of the soils this lesson of the kingdom of heaven is teaching us the very important lesson of the gospel salvation that we receive by hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. And this, is, this wayside person is not a person who was offered eternal life and they were very close to living in heaven with Jesus for all of eternity, but Satan deceived them. They were right on the brink of heaven, but Satan deceived them. And then they didn't profess Jesus publicly like they all have, and now they're going to go to hell. This is not talking about an eternal salvation. This is the, the assurance and the peace and the salvation from ignorance and shame and from this untoward generation, the, the gospel, timely, temporal salvation that we have in the gospel is what's being described right here. And not all of God's children are going to lay hold on that. That's what we've been talking about, right? With entering into the abundant life. 
and experiencing in the kingdom of heaven. One of the uh, lines in one of the songs we sing uh, from every stormy wind that blows, I think, and heaven comes down our souls to greet and glory crowns the mercy seat. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven in the church is heaven, heaven coming down and us experiencing a little bit of the joys of heaven in a little bit of a, of a timely sense of a temporal. Temporal is something we can see. Eternal is something that we can't see. In a temporal, timely sense, we can feel something that is beyond our ability to really understand it right now. I mean, we can't experience heaven of eternity, right? But we can experience in the kingdom of heaven by the preaching of the gospel, we can experience a little bit of that right here and right now. And the reality is that not every child of God is going to lay hold on that and experience that and live the abundant life and be saved by the gospel in the manner that God intends for them to, okay? So, these four grounds, the parable of the soils. First of all, we need to see that you are not necessarily locked into this uh, one ground for the entirety of your life. Th this is talking about an individual response at a moment in time of how people receive the gospel because there have been people that the first time they heard the gospel, they didn't believe it right away. The wayside, Right? And then the same person in their life, a few years later down the road, then all of a sudden the gospel comes to them in power and in much assurance. And then they believe it. They receive it with joy. They're that stony ground that shoots up very quickly. But then they start making changes in their life. They realize that it's a lot, the, the narrow way is a whole lot harder than I thought. And then all of a sudden they, they fade away. But then there's people that... Even after they go through that period of shooting up quickly and then fading away, then they come to a point of repentance later in their life and they are good ground. And then all of us struggle. I certainly hope the thorns don't quench us to where we become totally unfruitful, but all of us struggle with the thorns of, of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other. That's a struggle that all of us have. So there are some children of God that have been at different points in their life of discipleship. They have received the gospel in all four different ways, right? And then think about someone who has received the gospel. They're, they're in good ground, a uh, hundredfold, maybe even sixtyfold. But then there can be some things in their life that can knock them down a couple pegs. You know, even in the good ground, you see there are a variation of fruit bearing even in the good ground, 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. And you know what? You may be 60-fold. Praise God, you're 60-fold. But then you go through a time where some of those thorns, they don't totally uh, quench all of your profitability, but you go from 60-fold to now all of a sudden I'm struggling with the cares of this world and my fruitfulness is diminishing a little bit to where I'm going down from a 60-fold down to a 30-fold, or maybe even lower than that. You see, so this is describing children of God at an individual moment in their life of discipleship. And this is the general four different types of responses that you will see to the gospel. <clears throat> It said there in Mark chapter 4, 
and in verse 13. Know you not this parable, how then will you know all parables? Know you not this parable, how then will you know all parables? That tells me that this parable is of critical importance for us to understand many things in the scriptures, but particularly all these parables, okay? This is, and the doctrine of gospel salvation, of the timely salvation that we can experience here in time in the gospel, it is what I would call a key to the kingdom. Now, Jesus used that kind of language in Mark in Matthew chapter 16 when he was talking to the apostles, and he said, hey, I've given you the keys to the kingdom, and you're, what you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is going to be loose in heaven. And I know that's not directly connected to what we're talking about this morning, but if you'll let me use that term, a key is something that unlocks so many spiritual truths in the Word of God. And I believe that particularly the testimony of people that have came to the Primitive Baptist Church from other denominations, that they saw that wayside person, they saw somebody uh, felt like that it was on, on their shoulders to go and administer to that person, and then I have to get them to believe so they can be saved to heaven. And they, wear, they wore that burden on them all the time. And if you really believe that, by the way, I don't feel like that the majority of people that believe in free will really believe it. Because if you do, how can you ever have a, a, a single night of restful sleep? Now, there's some people that do really believe it. There's people that are now primitive Baptists that used to really believe it. And there was no moment of rest. If you really believe it, there's no moment of rest. Because everyone I see may be on the fast track to hell. And if I don't minister to them, they're on the wayside, right? If I don't minister to them and I don't get them to believe and be saved to heaven, they're going to spend eternity in hell. You know, that's why he said. Now, that's, that's other people. By the, that, that, that's your, the, the burden and disposition of you feeling the eternal salvation of other people. But just your own salvation, that's described in uh, Acts chapter 15 as being a yoke upon the neck of the disciples that we weren't intended to bear. That's just talking about your salvation. That's just talking about you doing enough work so you can go to heaven. And how horrible is it that you're walking around with the yoke of every single person you meet on your neck? <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty heavy load, isn't it? And, and, but I'll tell you, when people have come to the Primitive Baptist Church and they, they can now put these verses that say if you believe and be saved, they can now put it in the right context and say, oh, wait a minute, that's not going to heaven. That is the assurance and peace that you have that I'm already going to heaven, that Jesus has already saved us from our sins. They can put that in the right context, and that has been, if you talk to people that have had that experience, you want to talk about a key to the kingdom that has unlocked the word of God. Because until you understand that not every time it says saved is talking about heaven, you're going to be as confused as old Sonny Piles used to say, confused as a, as a termite in a yo-yo. As confused as, we use Joe Nettles' language, confused as a football bat. I mean, you're just going to be confused. <laughs> Why? Because it says over here, we can't do anything to be saved. We're not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it says, over here, save yourself. That don't work. It, it, you can't reconcile those two until you have the key, right? Until you have the key that unlocks it. And so you can put 
verses that say you need to do something to be saved, now you can put them in the right context, right? And that context is the kingdom of heaven. That context is the church and the gospel. So the parable of the soils is a key to the kingdom that unlocks so many scriptures to put them in the right context that this is not talking about people's eternal destination being in doubt. It's talking about their assurance or their conviction in their heart, okay? It's talking about the assurance and the peace that they have in the gospel. Now, we've been talking a little bit about the straight gate and the narrow way, and I want to go back there to Matthew chapter 7 and remind ourselves of the fact, first of all, this is written to the disciples of Christ. Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 1, seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain and went, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. So these are to the disciples. This is not when he says, enter ye in the straight gate, he's not offering eternal life to the world. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. And who are in peril of going into the broad way and the wide gate? The disciples that he's talking to, right? Now, what can happen when you get deceived to go in the wide gate and the broad way? Those are the perils of the wayside, of the stony ground, and the thorny ground. You need to purge those out. And what do you need to do? You need to enter into life. You need to enter into the good ground. Enter ye in the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way which lead to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, we know that there's not going to be a few people in heaven. We're going to make our way to, Lord willing, uh, to Revelation chapter 7, that God's elect family that he chose before the foundation of the world is a multitude which no man can number out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. Isn't it good to know, first of all, that people's eternal salvation is not dependent upon me preaching the gospel, but to know that God has a people that is so much broader than just the visible church, than just the people that are baptized into the Primitive Baptist Church. Because I'll tell you, if it was just baptized Primitive Baptists that believe in salvation by grace alone in heaven, I mean, I'm thankful to have what we have in the kingdom of God but that it, you can number those people. Uh, you can number baptized primitive Baptist. And I'll tell you, it's, it's not as big as it should be, all right? But the reality is that there's a limited group. There's a few disciples who are really willing to lay down the things of this world and press into the kingdom. And there's going to be so many people in heaven out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue that they lived good lives. All children of God will know the Lord from the least to the greatest in their heart with a Abba Father knowledge, but not all children of God are going to know 
the name of Jesus. Job didn't know the name of Jesus, did he? He knew he had a redeemer. And he knew he was going to see him. And he knew he was coming back. And he knew he was going to see him with his own two eyes. But Job didn't know the name of Jesus. But boy, he had a hope in his heart that he had a redeemer and that he was going to heaven when he died. But, he, but there's a lot of information that Job didn't have. He said, I know it's so of a truth, but how can a man be just with God? I mean, I, I know that for me to be in heaven with God, God's just, I can't be there as a sinner. I guess I would have to be just. But it doesn't make any sense because I feel to be such a sinner, right? But what does the gospel tell us? Gospel says you're justified by the blood of Jesus. That's information that Job didn't know. And that's information that children of God all throughout this world, many of them, will never come to the knowledge that we have in the gospel and in the kingdom of heaven, but they will all be in heaven with the Lord. And I'll tell you, I think there's a good chance that primitive Baptists are just about the only people that will tell you in public. There's some people that will concede it in private, but the only people that will tell you in public that God has a people that is far beyond the preached gospel, far beyond the baptized ranks of churches that are all going to be in heaven. Why? Because he has a people out of every nation and every tongue and every kindred and every people. Okay? We're about the only people that have that message. And I believe that is clearly exhibited in the parable of the soils as well. But of all of God's elect family, the reality is that there is a remnant. There is a good ground remnant that will be faithful to the Lord. But if you try to look at people's actions and to say that every child of God will absolutely do X, Y, Z, and if you fall anywhere below X, Y, Z, then you're a false professor and you're going to hell, then you have a very flawed understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ, okay? It's not your job to try to identify goats. That's God's business at the last day, all right? But if you think that only these people that are doing what I think is right in my vision and with my understanding, that's only going to be in the scheme of all of God's elect family. That's only going to be a few of them. It's a righteous remnant. And we want to highlight that this morning. Let's go to um, John chapter 6. And here in John chapter 6, Jesus has fed the 5,000 men so those were just men. So the good chance, you know, if they brought a wife and a kid, it could have been easily ten to 15,000 that he fed with those loaves and fishes. And then he got into some very hard-hitting doctrines. I'll tell you, you look at John chapter 6, and you can find just about all the doctrines of grace in there. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, eternal security. You can find it all in John chapter 6, all right? And then... In John chapter 6 and verse 30, Therefore many of his disciples, the Holy Spirit calls these people disciples. The Holy Spirit called them that. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Boy, this, this is tough to hear. You know, there are many children of God that when they hear that you don't have a single thing to do with you going to heaven, you don't have anything to add to the work of Christ, they just can't handle it. They just can't handle it because they feel like they have to be in control. And many of them 
Boy, this is a hard saying. <laughs> I just can't accept. Isn't that funny? <laughs> you feel like you have to accept Jesus. But I can't accept the fact that it's by grace. <laughs> I can't accept the fact that I don't have to do anything to go to heaven. And there are many children of God today that they hear the doctrines of grace. Boy, that, that's hard. That, that's, those aren't hard sayings. <laughs> it's the most joyous sayings that this world has for us to offer. So then... Jesus says, you know, will you also go away, et cetera, et cetera. He says he knew who would believe not and who should betray him. I think that's talking about Judas there. But then it says in verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. The Holy Spirit called them disciples, okay? It didn't call them goats. The Holy Spirit didn't call them false professors. These are disciples. But they heard something that was hard for them to stomach. And they said, you know what? This, this gate's getting a little straight. <laughs> this way is getting a little narrow. You know what? I think I'll just go back home. All right? These are children of God. These are disciples. But the way got narrow, and they said, that's a little bit too narrow for us. That's a little bit too much. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 12... Now, this is a more common uh, quoting of this passage of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And I believe that's appropriate. Very good lessons there in Matthew chapter 6. I want to kind of blend them together in Luke chapter 12. He's saying, don't take thought for your body, what you're going to eat, what you're going to put on. Verse 29 of Luke chapter 12. Seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. He tells him in verse 32 to don't be afraid. So what does a doubtful mind many times lead to? Fear, right? But these are people that are uh, wanting or trying to put the kingdom of God first. It doesn't use the word first there in Luke chapter 12, so that's why we kind of, kind of want to mesh John uh, Matthew chapter 6 there. It says in verse 31, if you'll let me use Matthew 6.33, let's supply it right there but rather seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then right after that, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Then he goes on to say, Sell what you have and give alms. Provide for those that don't have it. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, of all the elect family of God that are going to be in heaven, how many people are going to truly put the kingdom of God first and foremost in their life? It's interesting, he says right here in this context, fear not, little flock. Now, do you think there's going to be a little flock of sheep in heaven? <laughs> no, there's not. There's going to be billions of sheep in heaven. But who are the people? that are willing to sell what you have for the benefit of someone else? Who are the people that are really, really willing to trust totally, to put the kingdom first and trust totally on God to provide for their needs? There's only going to be a little flock that are willing to do that. There's going to be a few people that are pressing into that straight gate. There's going to be a little flock that are truly putting the kingdom of God first and foremost as they ought to in their life. And that is, again, the natural disposition of this parable. Now, that doesn't mean that literally every one out of four 
children of God or good ground. That's not the point. It's showing a natural disposition. And you understand, right, that only one out of those four, 25%, Jesus calls the good ground. And then, even in the good ground, you have varying degrees of fruitfulness. Again, I don't necessarily think it's an even allocation in the good ground, but if it was, if it was an even allocation, of the total, how much is the 100-fold good ground? About 8%. Okay? Think about that. About 8%. If it was an even allocation. About 8% is the 100-fold good ground. And I'll tell you, the 100-fold good ground, and praise God we have quite a few of them here in our church, it's easy to pasture 100-fold good ground, folks. <laughs> it's easy to pasture good ground, folks. The challenge in pasturing is the stony ground. Getting to the wayside people and beating back the thorns that encroach on all of us. You know, these are the people, the hundredfold good ground, those are the people that are the true salt of the earth that are just, it's a joy to pastor them, (laughs) but they're few and far between. (laughs) It's just a reality. It's a reality. Of all of God's people, there's only going to be a few people walking as closely with the Lord as they should. And they have struggles too. We all have struggles. But what I'm saying is the majority of God's people are going to struggle a lot. Okay? And then that's why God gave preachers. That's why God gave pastors. That's why he was concerned about the sheep. He said there in Matthew chapter 9, he was concerned about them. He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were his sheep having no shepherd. He knows the danger. He knows the danger of that stony ground person. He knows the danger of that thorny ground person. And you need someone that's there that has a love for the flock, has a love for that little flock to go. You know, it says that the shepherd goes and he's the one that goes, finds that one sheep. The 99 are good in the flock, but you have one that goes astray. Does, does Jesus Christ, is he coming back down from heaven to go get them? No. Who's going to get them? The pastors are going to get them, right? So God put that structure in place to bring his children back into faithful discipleship. Okay, um, in Matthew chapter 13, it's where we find it in Matthew's gospel. And you remember in Matthew, he's the one that presents the kingdom of heaven disposition. Okay, the kingdom of heaven. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, a couple verses, a couple chapters before then, that's when he sends the apostles out. And he said, all right, you go and you preach the gospel. And also he gave them the ability to cast out devils. And then they come back. And boy, I can only imagine, they didn't really understand what was going on. But then they come back and they said, Jesus, you wouldn't believe this. We're casting out devils left and right. This is amazing what God's doing right here. And I love what Jesus tells them there. He said, that's good. Praise God for that. Uh, But also, don't be thankful of that. Be thankful because your names are written in heaven. That's a good thing to be reminded of. But think about these apostles, though, okay? They, their first taste of ministry was almost like 100% amazing success. And then a couple chapters later, Jesus said, All right, praise God that you were casting out devils this first time you went out. Praise God that you're on fire. Praise God that you're having this amazing success. But now I want you to understand the reality of the way it's going to be the rest of the time. I'm glad that Jesus didn't, uh, Jesus 
and the Word of God is authentic and realistic and truthful. Right? It's not pie in the sky. No, it's truthful. And he said, look, look, preachers, you're coming back and you think that you're going to be going everywhere and everyone's going to love you and they're loving the gospel and you're casting out devils everywhere. He said, listen, I want to tell you how it's going to be the rest of your ministry. That there's only going to be a few good ground people. The rest of the people, you're going to have to really work hard and minister to these people. And I think it's good for us to be reminded of that disposition as well because it can be very discouraging for us, for us to be so excited and joyful about the message of salvation by grace alone, and then you go and you tell everybody else about it, and they don't really care. They don't really care. Now, it'd be very easy to be discouraged and be like, uh, um, Brother Julian, I never had the privilege to meet Brother Julian Cunningham and Deacon Down at uh, Little Union Church in Lithia, Florida. Uh, I've heard really great stories about him since he passed a couple months ago. Um, but apparently very involved in the community, invited everyone he met to church, and that's how we all need to be. But, but uh, apparently very godly man, but also had a very good sense of humor. And I think one of the quotes that was attributed to him was that, I know inviting people to church works because one out of every 100 comes. <laughs> well, you know what? It can be very discouraging when you're on number 99, right? I mean, if that's the right disposition... You can be very, I mean, I love, I love the gospel that says that we are saved by grace alone, finished work of Christ, and there's nothing you can add to it. And we should be excited to tell people about that. And then you're excited about it, and then they just, that's a hard saying, you know. That, I just, it doesn't mean much to me. It can be very easy to be discouraged. It can be very easy to become very weary and well-doing. So he said, listen, apostles, this is the way it's going to normally be. <laughs> this is the way it's not. Not every day is going to be Pentecost, right? They baptized 3,000 folks, and then a couple days later, 500 men were coming to join the church. You're not going to be baptizing 8,000 people in a couple weeks most of the time. <laughs> this was a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the establishment of the church. But most of the time... It's only going to be a few people. Most of the time, it's going to be a little flock. So I think part of the reason he gives them this disposition is so they have the right perspective. And we need to keep that perspective, too. Don't, be Don't you think there's anything wrong with the gospel or with the product that we have just because we are a little flock? We have everything that we need. We just need to do it better. We have the gospel. We have Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. What do we need to do? Continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking bread and prayers. Preach the gospel of salvation by grace alone. That is all we need to do as the church. And if we do it faithfully and we do it better, the Lord will bless. All right? But don't be discouraged when only one out of ten people, one out of one hundred people shows up. <laughs> because the natural disposition is that we're going to be a little flock. That there's going to be a few people on the road to discipleship. Okay, now think about a couple examples of this. <clears throat> um, in Luke chapter 17, we have ten lepers cleansed, right? Ten lepers. Jesus has cleansed us of our, the leprosy of our sin. Praise God for that. How many of those ten cleansed lepers came back to give God the glory? One of them. One out of ten. Ten percent. Only one out of ten came back to give 
the glory to God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it makes a reference that Jesus in his resurrected state appeared to over 500 brethren at once. Now, I, I doubt that this was a 500-person men's meeting. They probably had wives there. They probably had children there. I bet there was a good chance that he appeared to at least 1,000 people. But we'll just take the 500 for right now. How many people were left in that upper room in Acts chapter 1 before the day of Pentecost? How many people? 120. What happened to those other 380 people? You think Jesus wasted his time? They're called brethren, by the way. But do you think he wasted his time appearing to unregenerates? These were children of God that saw the resurrected Christ. Where are the 380? Where were they at? There's most likely there was a thousand people in that room if all of them had a wife with them. If you take 120 of the 500, that's 23%. If there was 1,000 people, 120 is 12%. That's pretty much in line with the disposition of the parable of the sower, isn't it? Right? Less than 25%. But where were those 380 people? To think that they saw the resurrected Christ, and then they were like Peter, and said, well, I guess I'll just go fishing, you know? Why weren't you with the church? There's only a few of them. There's only a few of them. Let's back up to the Old Testament. <clears throat> they sent 12 spies into the promised land. How many of them came back with a good report? Two. Two out of the 12. Two out of the 12. That's 16%. And what happened? A whole generation died in the wilderness. Why? Because they didn't listen to the minority. Only two out of the 12, which, by the way, is a side note to that. Um, they were, that generation died in the wilderness, then they were going into the kingdom. And there were two and a half tribes. It was um, um, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, that they, that they were rightful inhabitants to the promised land. But they get right on the brink of the promised land, and they said, you know what, we like this land over here. We want the land on the other side of Jordan. Two and a half tribes decided, two and a half out of the 12 tribes, said, you know what, I think we want to live right on the outskirts of the promise. Why would you want to live right on the brink of the Jordan instead of living on the other side of Jordan? But how many children of God go to church their whole life, but they've never crossed the Jordan of baptism, right? How many children of God just hang out in the church their whole life because they're content right on the brinks of Jordan instead of really pressing into the promised land? But back to those spies. Only two out of those 12 spies came back with a good report. There was a time that Elijah, after he had stood down those 850 false prophets, as a side note to that, he was standing by himself boldly against Ahab and those false prophets. But he knew he knew that there were two sets of 50 of prophets that had been hidden in caves to protect them from Ahab. He knew that, okay? He was notified of that. So at a minimum, there was 101 people. Now, they weren't standing with him as boldly against the prophets of Baal as they should have, but Elijah gets like, 
many people today, when they start viewing other people, and I'm the only one that's living godly. I'm the only one that is meeting my standard of righteousness. Everybody else is probably just reprobate goats. I'm the only one left, and you know what? Since I'm the only one left, Lord, just take me on to heaven. Just take my life. And then what did God tell him? He said, listen, Elijah, first of all, you know better that you're not the only one. You know there's a hundred prophets that are hidden in caves. But what did he tell him? What did he tell Elijah? He said, look, you're not alone, wolf. You're not the only one left because I have reserved for me 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal. Elijah said, based on my... Now, now where were those 7,000 people? That may have been a figurative number. Seven's the number of completion in the Bible. A thousand, it just gives the idea of large numbers. Were there a literal 7,000 people or is he just speaking figuratively of a large righteous remnant. I kind of tend to think he's just speaking figuratively. But let's just say there were a literal 7,000 men right there. Where were they at? You know, there's a big difference between one versus 850 and then 7,001 versus 850. I mean, that would have looked a lot different, wouldn't it have? I mean, that would have looked a lot different when they were having that little fire from heaven battle if there were 7,000 people standing on the side of, of Elijah. But where were they at? Where were they at? Now, they were internal conscientious object objectors, but they weren't living externally as boldly as they should have because they should have been standing right there with Elijah, right? But Elijah is like many Pharisaical children of God are here in this world. And they look out at everybody else and say, I'm the only one that's meeting the cut. I'm the only one that's really serving God. And they all need to be told the same thing that God told Elijah, which is, first of all, you need to humble yourself and get off your prideful Pharisee high horse because God has a people out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. God has a righteous remnant that he has reserved for himself. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Just because they're not standing right there beside you like they ought to have been. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> excusing those people. They should have been standing up boldly. They were disobeying God by not doing that. But just because they were disobeying God does not mean that they were not among God's children. All right? But Elijah says, I'm the only one who's serving God and God says, look, I've got a people that's way bigger than just the people that are standing up boldly with you, which is at a minimum just 100 folks, okay? Okay, think about, uh, think about Gideon. They started out when they were fighting the Midianites, started out with 32,000 people. And God said, you got too many people. Send everybody home that is fearful and afraid. They sent 22,000 people home. So 68%, when you ask them, a point blank. <laughs> By the way, we've been talking about uh, the church, spiritual warfare. We're in the Lord's army, right? Think about this in a military sense, <clears throat> which, by the way, it's good he sent them home because if you're in the army and you're supposed to be defending your country and your family and you are comfortable telling your general that, yeah, I'm really afraid to go and fight. Yeah, we don't really need you. You can just go ahead and go home. <laughs> but you know what? That was the majority of the army. That was 68% of the army, all right? So now they only had 10,000 people left. And then he said, all right, go to, the, go to the brook and 
get some to drink. And then there were only 300 people who were vigilant. They didn't just stick their head in the water. No, they bowed down and they, they cupped it where they, they could see. I mean, they're in the middle of a battle. They're in the middle of a war. You need to be vigilant of your surroundings, right? How many people did they end up with? Just 300 folks. Started out with 32K. 22,000 people were afraid, sent them home. Of the 10,000 who were courageous, so to say, only 300 were vigilant to be watchful in the middle of the warfare the manner that they should have, okay? Now, of the 10,000, the 300 is 3%, but of the 32,000, it's 0.09%. <laughs> the, the point is, the point is, those 300 that were not afraid and that were vigilant they were a very small minority of the overall army of the people of God, okay? <clears throat> God has reserved for himself a righteous remnant. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. And this is such a consistent theme all throughout the scriptures. God says... Um, if you're obedient, I'm going to bless you. But if you're disobedient, I'm going to judge you. He judges them. And then these are all the punishments that you have justly earned. But then God always promises restoration. And he always promises that there will be a righteous remnant. There always will be a righteous remnant. But there's a reason why it's called a remnant. Because it's not the majority. Okay? It's a remnant. Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Esaias, which is Isaiah, also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So God has a people, out of our nation, kindred, people, and tongue, sand is the sea, so only a remnant of them are going to heaven? Well, that, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, but there's only going to be a remnant that boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that stand faithfully. God has a people of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue as the sand of the sea, but only a remnant shall be saved. And then continuing on, this is a great example of why the, the, the chapter divisions are helpful, but we need to ignore them in many instances. And in verse 33 right here, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. And that leads right into Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What do they need to be saved to? They need to be saved to uh, be, be remove their hope of, of righteousness being solely on their own works. They being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And that leads right up into, these people already have faith. Verse 8, the word of faith is in your mouth. I mean, they're confessing faith. They're just confessing the wrong thing. They're confessing their works instead of Jesus. They have the word of faith. The faith is being exhibited by their speech. They're just saying the wrong things. Why? Because they don't have the knowledge that they need in the gospel, okay? 
But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man confesses unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. What are you saved from? Verse 11, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. You're saved from ignorance. You're saved from shame. Save yourself from this untoward generation around you. God's children are as the sand of the sea, but there is only going to be a remnant who are bold enough to profess Jesus publicly and then experience that answer of going to baptism and experience that answer of a good conscience and assurance of faith that you have in the gospel. Now, much more of this gospel salvation is highlighted in verse in the, in the remainder of chapter 10, but then continue on through chapter 11, all right? He makes reference to Elijah, which is what we referenced before. Elijah makes intercession to God and says in verse three, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone and they seek my life. What saith the Lord of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men that have not bowed their knee to the image of Baal even so, at this present time, there is also a remnant according to the election of grace. God preserved a remnant, all right? God preserved his remnant to glorify and honor his name. Okay, now, to close this out, let's go to Revelation 7. Revelation chapter 7. And here we have this depiction of 144,000 spiritual Jews that are sealed in their forehead and here in the narrative, this is between the loosing of the sixth seal and before the unloosing of the seventh seal. But I believe this is indicative of the whole church in all ages, not just closer to the end of time. But here, we know that Jews uh, are not ones that are natural. Um, Jews are those that have received a circumcision of the heart. Okay? So this is speaking of spiritual Jews. And then... A thousand is a number of a large number of perfection, and then you essentially have twelve thousand people out of every tribe, which multiply that out. It's one hundred and forty-four thousand. So you can see right here that there is a definitive number that man can count of these one hundred and forty-four thousand Jews that are sealed in their forehead on the earth. They're described here in verse three, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. Now, compare that to verse 9. So he sees the 144,000 sealed on the earth, which is the church militant, which is the righteous remnant, which are those that have professed a belief in Jesus Christ. So he sees this on the earth, and that's important. He sees the 144,000 on the earth, but then the vision shifts but this I beheld in heaven, and lo, a great multitude, which no man can number of all nations and kindred and people and tongues. And they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So that's the entire lay family of God. Now, notice, man can't count that. But you could count the righteous remnant. Now, it says that they were sealed. In Ephesians chapter 1, it describes the sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise. And I would say for your consideration that that 144,000 righteous remnant is what we would consider to be the church. The righteous, faithful, 
straight gate, narrow way, discipleship, kingdom of heaven church here in time because they are identifiable and they are accountable. Okay? In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, in whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, is that, the, is that being born again? No. No. When you believe, that's evidence you're already born again. But there is a special confirmation and seal of the Holy Spirit on your heart when you believe. It says in um, Romans chapter 8 that you've been born again by the Spirit of adoption and you have an Abba Father, uh, knowledge of Him. And then in Romans 8 and verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So when you believe, that answer of a good conscience is that the Holy Spirit seals on your heart and gives you a witness that you are among God's children. You know, you go from from conviction and condemnation to say, if my, uh, which is still true, but well, if my soul were sent to hell, your righteous law proves it well. There's no way that I can be a child of God when you feel that conviction of sin and you feel like your only hope is salvation by works. But then you believe in salvation by grace and now all of a sudden you don't have conviction and burden and fear anymore. What do you now have? Assurance. And the answer of a good conscience and that spirit witnesses to your spirit that you are an adopted child of God and there's nothing that can pluck me out of the Father's hand. Okay? That's what happens when you believe. That's what happens when you confess Jesus Christ publicly. And there are multitudes of salvations that go along with that in the church and in the kingdom of God. Okay? So these 144,000, they have been sealed in their foreheads. And by the way, if it's in your forehead, you can look in a mirror. But who is that seal for? It's not for you. It's for other people, right? They're the ones that are looking at your forehead. So you are identified publicly with Jesus Christ, which is the church. And how do you, how do you identify yourself publicly with the church? You confess Jesus Christ and you're baptized. So this 144,000, now, what do you think, and there's a reason why man can't number it, right? Uh, which, by the way, if, if uh, every time that somebody prays a sinner's prayer and all this other stuff, if that was the number of people in heaven and you had enough scribes and people counting all this stuff up, you could identify the family of God, couldn't you? If it's based on baptismal roll books, you know, the Church of Christ that literally says you have to be a member of our church to go to heaven. There is a definitive number somewhere, somebody totaled it up, of all of the members of the Church of Christ. But that's not who's going to be in heaven. Because <laughs> man can't count them. Man can't count them. But I believe there are billions of God's elect going to be in heaven. Billions with the B. Now, what do you think 144,000 is compared to a billion? This is a pretty small number, isn't it? It's pretty small. It's pretty small. That righteous remnant, the little flock here in time that serves the Lord faithfully. And, but I'm so thankful for the truth of the Scriptures that God's family is so broad. Jesus' blood is so 
effective that he saved all his people and he is not dependent upon us to bring the gospel to them to get them to heaven. Now, we need to bring the gospel to them because God's children need to know what Christ has already done for them, but their eternal life is not hanging in the balance. That wayside person is not on the fast track to hell and I got to pull them to our side to take them to heaven. No, but they need to be saved from ignorance. They need to be saved from shame. They need to be saved from this untoward generation around them. And the gospel is how God's children are saved in that way, but particularly in the context of what we're talking about this morning. They are they can experience the kingdom of heaven. I can only imagine how some of those children of God that were, you know, children of God in Egypt, for example, that all they had was all that pantheon of gods, they had the pyramids and all this stuff, and they weren't happy with that. A child of God that is in that state, they love their wife, they love their kids, and they show agape love to other people, but they don't have the knowledge that they need. But just like the people in Acts chapter 17 in Athens that made a temple, uh, an altar to the unknown God, those children of God in those other scenarios, they weren't happy. That's all they, that's all they knew, right? That's all they knew, but they weren't happy with that. And I can just imagine this child of God that lives their entire life dissatisfied with all of this polytheism that was the only thing that they knew. And they knew in their heart that I was just, this ain't right, you know? This is not exactly right, but that's all they knew. And they lived their entire life not being satisfied. They're not going to know anything about that until that first moment in heaven. See? But the knowledge that they don't have in time, so they can relish more in the joys of heaven, we have that knowledge in the gospel. Do you understand that? That there are ignorant children of God that won't know it here in time. They won't know it until they get to heaven. But we have the ability to know those heavenly truths and feel the joy and the peace that those heavenly truths give us here in the church and in the kingdom of heaven. Do you get that? And we don't need to squander what we've been given. Okay? To whom much is given, much is required. And we've been given so much in the New Testament church, particularly in America. And... I believe to a large degree we've squandered it. And I pray God will forgive us for that. But today's a new day, and we can lay hold on it today in the manner that we ought to. Press into that kingdom of heaven and experience the joy and the peace that the Lord has given us that we can really reach out and taste heaven here in time. We can lay hold on eternal life. We can lay hold on Jesus. Many children of God will not have that privilege. They will not understand what Christ has done for them until they get to heaven. But we have the opportunity to do that in the church and in the kingdom of heaven. Let's not forfeit what has been given to us. Lay hold on that and press into the kingdom in service to God. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.